Chapter Twenty Two of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Twenty Two. The Colleges of Unreason. Continued. Of genius they make no account, for they say that everyone is a genius, more or less. No one is so physically sound that no part of him will be even a little unsound, and no one is so diseased but that some part of him will be healthy. So no man is so mentally and morally sound but that he will be in part both mad and wicked. And no man is so mad and wicked but he will be sensible and honorable in part, in like manner there is no genius who is not also a fool and no fool who is not also a genius when i talked about originality and genius to some gentlemen whom i met at a supper party given by mr timms in my honour and said that original thought ought to be encouraged i had to eat my words at once their view evidently was that genius was like offences needs must that it come but woe unto that man through whom it comes. A man's business, they hold, is to think as his neighbors do, for heaven help him if he thinks good what they count bad, and really it is hard to see how the Erewhonian theory differs from our own, for the word idiot only means a person who forms his opinions for himself. The venerable professor of worldly wisdom a man verging on eighty, but still hale, spoke to me very seriously on this subject in consequence of the few words that I had imprudently let fall in defense of genius. He was one of those who carried most weight in the university, and had the reputation of having done more, perhaps, than any other living man to suppress any kind of originality. It is not our business, he said, to help students to think for themselves. Surely this is the very last thing which one who wishes them well should encourage them to do. Our duty is to ensure that they shall think as we do, or at any rate as we hold it expedient to say we do. In some respects, however, he was thought to hold somewhat radical opinions, for he was president of the Society for the Suppression of Useless Knowledge and for the completer obliteration of the past. As regards the tests that a youth must pass before he can get a degree, I found that they have no class lists and discourage anything like competition among the students. This, indeed, they regard as self-seeking and unneighborly. The examinations are conducted by way of papers written by the candidate on set subjects, some of which are known to him beforehand, while others are devised with a view of testing his general capacity and savoir-faire. My friend, the professor of worldly wisdom, was the terror of the greater number of students, and so far as I could judge, he very well might be, for he had taken his professorship more seriously than any of the other professors had done. I heard of his having plucked one poor fellow for want of sufficient vagueness in his saving clauses paper. Another was sent down for having written an article on a scientific subject without having made free enough use of the words carefully, patiently, and earnestly. One man was refused a degree for being too often and too seriously in the right, 
while a few days before I came a whole batch had been plucked for insufficient distrust of printed matter. About this there was just then rather a ferment, for it seems that the professor had written an article in the leading university magazine, which was well known to be by him, and which abounded in all sorts of plausible blunders. He then set a paper which afforded the examinees an opportunity of repeating these blunders which believing the article to be by their own examiner they of course did the professor plucked every single one of them but his action was considered to have been not quite handsome i told them of homer's noble line to the effect that a man should strive ever to be foremost and in all things to outvie his peers but they said that no wonder the countries in which such a detestable maxim was held in admiration were always flying at one another's throats. Why, asked one professor, should a man want to be better than his neighbors? Let him be thankful if he is no worse. I ventured feebly to say that I did not see how progress could be made in any art or science, or indeed in anything at all without more or less self-seeking, and hence unamiability. Of course it cannot, said the professor, and therefore we object to progress. After which there was no more to be said. Later on, however, a young professor took me aside and said he did not think I quite understood their views about progress. We like progress, he said, but it must commend itself to the common sense of the people. If a man gets to know more than his neighbors, he should keep his knowledge to himself till he has sounded them, and seen whether they agree, or are likely to agree with him. He said it was as immoral to be too far in front of one's own age as to lag too far behind it. If a man can carry his neighbors with him, he may say what he likes. But if not, what insult can be more gratuitous than telling them what they do not want to know? A man should remember that intellectual overindulgence is one of the most insidious and disgraceful forms that excess can take. Granted that everyone should exceed more or less, inasmuch as absolutely perfect sanity would drive any man mad the moment he reached it, but he was now warming to his subject, and I was beginning to wonder how I should get rid of him when the party broke up, and though I promised to call on him before I left, I was unfortunately prevented from doing so. I have now said enough to give English readers some idea of the strange views which the Erewhonians hold concerning unreason, hypothetics, and education generally. In many respects they were sensible enough, but I could not get over the hypothetics, especially the turning their own good poetry into the hypothetical language. In the course of my stay I met one youth who told me that for fourteen years the hypothetical language had been almost the only thing that he had been taught, although he had never, to his credit, as it seemed to me, shown the slightest proclivity towards it, while he had been endowed with not inconsiderable ability for several other branches of human learning. He assured me that he would never open another hypothetical book after he had taken his degree but would follow out the bent of his own inclinations. This was well enough, but who could give him his fourteen years back again? I sometimes wondered how it was that the mischief done was not more clearly perceptible, and that the young men and women grew up as sensible and goodly as they did, in spite of the attempts almost deliberately made to warp and stunt their growth. 
some doubtless received damage from which they suffered to their life's end, but many seemed little or none the worse, and some almost the better. The reason would seem to be that the natural instinct of the lads in most cases so absolutely rebelled against their training that do what the teachers might they could never get them to pay serious heed to it. The consequence was that the boys only lost their time, and not so much of this as might have been expected, for in their hours of leisure they were actively engaged in exercises and sports which developed their physical nature, and made them at any rate strong and healthy. Moreover, those who had any special tastes could not be restrained from developing them. They would learn what they wanted to learn and liked, in spite of obstacles which seemed rather to urge them on than to discourage them while for those who had no special capacity the loss of time was of comparatively little moment but in spite of these alleviations of the mischief i am sure that much harm was done to the children of the sub-wealthy classes by the system which passes current among the erewhonians as education the poorest children suffered least if destruction and death have heard the sound of wisdom to a certain extent poverty has done so also and yet perhaps after all it is better for a country that its seats of learning should do more to suppress mental growth than to encourage it. Were it not for a certain priggishness which these places infuse into so great a number of their alumni, genuine work would become dangerously common. It is essential that by far the greater part of what is said or done in the world should be so ephemeral as to take itself away quickly. It should keep good for twenty-four hours, or even twice as long, but it should not be good enough a week hence to prevent people from going on to something else. No doubt the marvelous development of journalism in England, and also the fact that our seats of learning aim rather at fostering mediocrity than anything higher, is due to our subconscious recognition of the fact that it is even more necessary to check exuberance of mental development than to encourage it. There can be no doubt that this is what our academic bodies do, and they do it the more effectually because they do it only subconsciously. They think they are advancing healthy mental assimilation and digestion, whereas in reality they are little better than cancer in the stomach. Let me return, however, to the Erwonians. Nothing surprised me more than to see the occasional flashes of common sense with which one branch of study or another was lit up, while not a single ray fell upon so many others. I was particularly struck with this on strolling into the art school of the university. Here I found that the course of study was divided into two branches, the practical and the commercial, no student being permitted to continue his studies in the actual practice of the art he had taken up, unless he made equal progress in its commercial history. Thus those who were studying painting were examined at frequent intervals in the prices which all the leading pictures of the last fifty or a hundred years had realized, and in the fluctuations in their values when, as often happened, they had been sold and resold three or four times. The artist, they contend, is a dealer in pictures, and it is as important for him to learn how to adapt his wares to the market, and to know approximately what kind of a picture will fetch how much, as it is for him to be able to paint the picture. This, I suppose, is what the French mean by laying so much stress upon values. 
As regards the city itself, the more I saw, the more enchanted I became. I dare not trust myself with any description of the exquisite beauty of the different colleges and their walks and gardens. Truly, in these things alone there must be a hallowing and refining influence which is in itself half an education, and which no amount of error can wholly spoil. I was introduced to many of the professors, who showed me every hospitality and kindness. Nevertheless, I could hardly avoid a sort of suspicion that some of those whom I was taken to see had been so long engrossed in their own study of hypothetics that they had become the exact antithesis of the Athenians in the days of St. Paul. For whereas the Athenians spent their lives in nothing save to see and to hear some new thing, there were some here who seemed to devote themselves to the avoidance of every opinion with which they were not perfectly familiar, and regarded their own brains as a sort of sanctuary, to which if an opinion had once resorted, none other was to attack it. I should warn the reader, however, that I was rarely sure what the men whom I met while staying with Mr. Thames really meant, for there was no getting anything out of them if they scented even a suspicion that they might be what they call giving themselves away. As there is hardly any subjects on which this suspicion cannot arise, I found it difficult to get definite opinions from any of them, except on such subjects as the weather, eating and drinking, holiday excursions, or games of skill. If they cannot wriggle out of expressing an opinion of some sort, they will commonly retail those of someone who has already written upon the subject, and conclude by saying that though they quite admit that there is an element of truth in what the writer has said, there are many points on which they are unable to agree with him. Which these points were, I invariably found myself unable to determine. Indeed, it seemed to be counted the perfection of scholarship and good breeding among them not to have, much less to express, an opinion on any subject on which it might prove later that they had been mistaken. The art of sitting gracefully on a fence has never, I should think, been brought to greater perfection than at the Erwonian Colleges of Unreason. Even when wriggle as they may, they find themselves pinned down to some expression of definite opinion, as often as not they will argue in support of what they perfectly well know to be untrue. I repeatedly met with reviews and articles, even in their best journals, between the lines of which I had little difficulty in detecting a sense exactly contrary to the one ostensibly put forward. So well is this understood, that a man must be a mere tyro in the yards of Erwonian polite society, unless he instinctively suspects a hidden yea in every nay that meets him. Granted that it comes to much the same in the end, for it does not matter whether yea is called yea or nay, so long as it is understood which it is to be. But our own, more direct way of calling a spade a spade, rather than a rake, with the intention that everyone should understand it as a spade, seems more satisfactory. On the other hand, the Erwonian system lends itself better to the suppression of that downrightness which it seems the express aim of Erwonian philosophy to discountenance. However this may be, the fear of giving themselves away disease was fatal to the intelligence of those infected by it, and almost every one at the colleges of unreason had caught it to a greater or less degree. After a few years, atrophy of the opinions invariably supervened, 
and the sufferer became stone dead to everything except the more superficial aspects of those material objects with which he came most in contact. The expression on the faces of these people was repellent. They did not, however, seem particularly unhappy, for they none of them had the faintest idea that they were in reality more dead than alive. No cure for this disgusting fear of giving themselves away disease has yet been discovered. It was during my stay in the city of the Colleges of Unreason, a city whose Erewhonian name is so cacophonous that I refrain from giving it, that I learned the particulars of the revolution which had ended in the destruction of so many of the mechanical inventions which were formerly in common use. Mr. Thims took me to the rooms of a gentleman who had a great reputation for learning, but who was also, so Mr. Thims told me, rather a dangerous person, inasmuch as he had attempted to introduce an adverb into the hypothetical language. He had heard of my watch, and been exceedingly anxious to see me, for he was accounted the most learned antiquary in Erewhon on the subject of mechanical lore. We fell to talking upon the subject, and when I left, he gave me a reprinted copy of the work which brought the revolution about. It had taken place some five hundred years before my arrival. People had long become thoroughly used to the change, although at the time that it was made the country was plunged into the deepest misery, and a reaction which followed had very nearly proved successful. Civil war raged for many years, and is said to have reduced the number of the inhabitants by one-half. The parties were styled the machinists and the anti-machinists, and in the end, as I have said already, the latter got the victory, treating their opponents with such unparalleled severity that they extirpated every trace of opposition. The wonder was that they allowed any mechanical appliances to remain in the kingdom, neither do I believe that they would have done so had not the professors of inconsistency and evasion made a stand against the carrying of the new principles to their legitimate conclusions. These professors, moreover, insisted that during the struggle the anti-machinists should use every known improvement in the art of war, and several new weapons, offensive and defensive, were invented while it was in progress. I was surprised at there remaining so many mechanical specimens as are seen in the museums, and at students having rediscovered their past uses so completely. For at the time of the revolution the victors wrecked all the more complicated machines, and burned all treatises on mechanics and all engineers' workshops, thus, so they thought, cutting the mischief out root and branch at an incalculable cost of blood and treasure. Certainly they had not spared their labor, but work of this description can never be perfectly achieved, and when, some two hundred years before my arrival, all passion upon the subject had cooled down, and no one save a lunatic would have dreamed of reintroducing forbidden inventions, the subject came to be regarded as a curious antiquarian study like that of some long-forgotten religious practices among ourselves. Then came the careful search for whatever fragments could be found, and for any machines that might have been hidden away, and also numberless treatises were written, showing what the functions of each rediscovered machine had been. 
all being done with no idea of using such machinery again, but with the feelings of an English antiquarian concerning druidical monuments or flint arrowheads. On my return to the metropolis during the remaining weeks, or rather days, of my sojourn in Erewhon, I made a résumé in English of the work which brought about the already mentioned revolution. My ignorance of technical terms has led me doubtless into many errors, and I have occasionally, where I found a translation impossible, substituted purely English names and ideas for the original Erewhonian ones. But the reader may rely on my general accuracy. I have thought it best to insert my translation here. End of chapter 22